You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's the Gritflix.com podcast. Welcome to Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Keith Bound. Hello, Keith. Hello, Stuart. Right then, before we just started there, we were, I was asking you, what do I describe you as? Because you and, I, you and I connected through a Facebook group, which is focused on genre film. And That's correct. In, the, in that thread, I, I, I posted a link to someone who'd done an analysis of um, Nightmare on Elm Street. And you brought some interesting issues there, and so <laughs> that, that led to this podcast. And we'll get into what the podcast is about in a second. But first off, and, and I said, do I describe you as a professor, as an academic, as a student, as a writer director? And then you you began to describe your 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 route to where where this conversation starts with between me and you. So do you want to sort of describe what you would say you are, or how or how why that is is it as easy to pin down as it first might seem? Okay, well, first of all, I'm a leading scholar um, in the science of storytelling, in particular suspense and how it's constructed. Okay. Um, so it's very difficult when you're looking at very uh, traditional film titles, like producer, director, it's very hard to really fit these sort of, within these sort of tight uh, restraints. And also they're very well established titles. People quite clearly know what a producer and director does. Well, what tended to do is to come into the film industry as a suspense consultant right. or a viewer engagement consultant but um, I've sort of started to think well really my background is design for the last 30 years I've been a designer in various different areas and that's um, where I'm coming from so you could call me a suspense and fear designer mm. for horror thriller films which I think really is really where the title should be but obviously for film people to take me probably a bit more seriously, I'll probably be have the title producer, mm. and then it's the producer of Suspense and Fear in horror and thriller films. So that's where I'm standing at the moment, but really what I'm doing with a script, um, or whether it's um, a screenplay, I can even do storyboard sketches as well, it's mm. more to do around how I design Suspense and Fear within a story. So that, that, that gives 
probably a little bit, but hopefully, as our discussion goes, it'll probably be a bit more clearer. So where where are you, where are you doing your research out of? What 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 institution are you, are you working in? So first of all, yeah, my research. Okay, so basically, where does this title come from? Why am I doing this? I suppose uh, it comes back down to when I started my PhD, which is probably back in two thousand and eleven, and. Suspense, I suppose, was something, I mean, I've always been very interested in looking, as a designer, of how we might um, develop a way of film experience where the viewer controls the narrative direction based on their emotional responses. So it does change depending on how we feel. And there has been some research, and there's a lot of, well, a bit of research doing in that area, in that direction, biofeedback side of things. Yeah. But I was quite interested in suspense because, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, studies, uh, particularly in media psychology back in the 80s, that there are sort of, um, sort of um, Brewer and Lichtenstein, for example, came up with three story uh, type structures that make us enjoy stories. Mm-hmm. And these are surprise, curiosity and suspense. Okay, makes sense. So, so there are others possibly, but these are the three that came up in the study. And, and to be honest, that's been really been used this sort of model that, um, or framework that he's had um, on a more media psychology level, mm. uh, not film theory, but media psychology. So basically, um, looking at suspense itself um, really appealed to me. So basically, um, I looked, investigated suspense, and what's quite interesting is there's very little um, in terms of a definition of suspense. Really? And that makes that may surprise a lot of people because if I talk to anybody who's in the business of filmmaking um, or even writing books or whatever, they will have a theory of suspense, right? Mm-hmm. But it won't be about what suspense is. It'll be about what they, the story mechanisms will bring about suspense. Does that, I'm not quite sure if that means anything to you. Um, no, that makes that makes sense. No, you, what you, yeah, it's... Because it, cause I, I guess to contextualise the, the, the fact that we started talking is that I, what I posted, your response was, this is subjective, as opposed to it, uh, basically saying what this guy is saying isn't proof of what makes horror good or what makes Nightmare on Elm Street, this, that, the other. Um, and equally, I guess what you're saying is someone describing what suspense is to them isn't proof of suspense, is it? But it doesn't tell us what suspense is. You no, see, true, I mean, yeah. if, you have a, if you have a definition of anything, it should be cascading around everything. Suspense cuts across all genres, for example. Mm-hmm. But what is suspense? So my first sort of part of my research was really to really, um, really have a go at this to find out, well, what is suspense? Now, there are some simplistic ways we can look at suspense, but um, it, it's very... Um, like I said, most people, and even media psychologists and, and certainly film theorists, will come out with a story structure like, oh, well, the antagonist has got to be fighting a protagonist, or there's um, this sense of hope um, and fear are the two key emotions, and uncertainty is important for suspense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this model was actually done by, um, um, I think it's called Orton et al. In, back in the eight, late 80s, mm-hmm. in their a theory of cognitive emotion uh, in their book. Now, this, this, the amount of research they did on this, the amount of discussion about this was one page in their book. <laughs> and again, it was, it was referring to story elements. Now, a lot of 
latched onto this thing about uncertainty had to be essential for suspense. It also latched on this fear and hope as two options or outcomes of a situation to generate suspense. Mm -hmm. But neither of them tell you what suspense is, you see. And it really led to a lot of problems because then that it causes this problem called the paradox of suspense. And what that means is that how can people experience suspense on repeat viewing? Because many people do. Mm -hmm. if, if uncertainty is essential for suspense to occur, because uncertainty is essential, then you're never going to experience suspense on repeat viewing, but people do. So, and I think this is where the misunderstandings you see come in. Mm. Our theories based on this, people didn't really sort of, well, what these guys are doing, you know, what research they do, what study did they do in terms of determining that suspense is about this hope um, and fear and this uncertainty. And there was no studies, you know, and, and I'm not saying there haven't been studies on suspense, but there was no real studies about this, about the audience experience. And I think this where film theory really has been quite challenging because most film theorists will watch a film and do an analysis on the film based on what they think is a theory that can do that. Yeah. Now obviously textual analysis is important, don't get me wrong, that's very essential. But the way and manner that people might do that, they may justify things or say things, uh, well they don't actually justify it, why they're saying it basically. They haven't got any evidence to suggest why certain things happened. It's, mm. it's more down to more of an opinion um, and so so basically what happens is that even media psychologists and film studies have come up with periods of suspense but they're all about different story mechanisms and I can give you an example about this as well okay. I mean for example if we look at Hitchcock one of his uh, favorite forms of suspense and you've heard it many times I won't go on too much about him in yeah, a sense but he gives an example of saying, like, there's an empty room, uh, some guy comes in probably with a, a bomb, mm. and puts it under the table, and then he walks out the room, and then two other people walk in the room, sit down by the table, not knowing there's a bomb there. Now, when this person came in the barn, the viewer knows it's a bomb, so it's shown that they know, it's a, uh, obviously they've shown it's a bomb, and they also know what time it's going to go off, and there's a clock on the wall. But these people that come sitting at the table do not know there's a bomb, notice carry on having a chat about anything. Mm. So of course the viewer is feeling um, quite uh, suspense in a sense because of what you know, feeling a sense of tension of what's going on and what will happen in the words when the bomb the bomb will explode soon they're not getting they're not getting out of the way and all the rest of it. Yeah. So this is is one of his theories of his suspense. So he would he would turn around and say, well the viewer needs to know all the information. And in that case they do. But Suspense, if, if viewers know everything about the story, there's no suspense. So Hitchcock used to contradict himself quite a bit. Yeah, there's no, um, there's, what, you're right, because if, if, if you take that element of uncertainty you described before, we're certain a bomb's going to go off at this point, aren't we? So the suspense is about when the bomb's going to go off. So the only uncertainty exactly. is about exactly. the moment of explosion. Exactly, yeah. But basically, the actual viewer knows more information. In other words, this type of suspense structure mm. is, a, is called, as um, Susan Smith calls, precarious suspense. And that's where we're privileged with information the viewer isn't. And that's like, you know, we used to see, I mean, the old pantomime days, going down to a pantomime, you all say, he's behind you, he's behind you, that sort yeah. of thing. 
it's a precarious form of suspense because we feel much more stressful when other people are in a vulnerable position. So obviously they're most vulnerable when they don't know what's going on and their life's in danger. Uh, and we'll talk about precarious a bit more because that, that was a, a narrative structure that I used in one of my studies. Okay. Um, so basically, so I think that when we're looking at uh, suspension, we talked about the paradox, we talked about really about Hitchcock. What I'm saying is that that example is okay, that's one uh, story aspect. But what is that really creating? Well, if we look at suspense, suspense is a mediation process. So it mediates between a, a, a stimulus of some sort or a story structure that triggers or something that triggers uh, a sense that we are anxious or feeling a sense of anticipatory stress mm -hmm. um, at a different level. Now, what I'm saying here is that we're waiting for a certain outcome to happen of a certain event. Um, and okay, it could be a marriage proposal. I mean, Hitchcock was good. He said, "Look, suspense isn't about fear." You know, and he gave an example uh, of one of his earlier films, um, and that was uh, basically within this film there was a, you know, an operator listening to two a man and a woman having a conversation on on the phone, and the guy proposed marriage to her. So the operator was like waiting in anticipatory, in, in an anticipatory stress reaction in terms of waiting to see whether she's going to say yes or no. And that's where we did, we just see the operator going through that sense of waiting to see. And it's all about this waiting and suspense is about that. I was going to say, because I mean, what, what we're talking about in a way, what Hitchcock, what Hitchcock has a sort of cottoned onto is a kind of micro version of of what Chekhov's gun is, isn't it? It's like if you essentially by showing the bomb, you better use the bomb because if you don't use the bomb, you know, if you, you can, you know, the way that Chekhov's gun works is, is obviously we show a gun, therefore that gun must be important at some point later. So the audience is left wondering when the gun will appear or what the gun will what the gun will be. And in a way, the bomb is just the, the bomb under the table, and knowing the bomb's there is like. I guess in a, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about this as we're talking. I haven't got this theory okay. wrapped up, um, but yeah, we're thinking about the fact that the, what the bomb, what the, what the, the suspense angle from Hitchcock's point of view is just like a specific version of that, which is I'm going to give you something so you're aware of where we're going, but you're going to worry about the people involved in where it's going. I suppose is the thing, isn't it? Well, it is. It's like it's, a, it's about. Talk about a mediation process. Um, mm. We'll talk about how people actually understand story in a minute because you made a very good point about the gun then. Uh, mm. um, and the suspense can be formed in lots of different ways. I had to measure it in a certain way because okay. suspense has been measured before. Um, no one's attempted to do that um, and find out really what the construction of suspense is about. But I had to really find out what I was going to measure first because you can't. See, without a clear definition of suspense, how do you know what you're measuring? You don't. Of course, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, science you use, you can wire people up and everything, and people have done that. But they haven't really, you know, they've done that with film, and they've come out with very many assumptions about what people are thinking and doing, but they still don't know what, within that film context, uh, is creating a certain response, because you've got many different layers of film. Um, which we can go into. So how, what did, what did you do then? Yeah, I think what Hitchcock did, uh, yeah. for start-up, was what he did was, 
suspense was going on well before he even got a filmmaker. I mean, suspense was happening well before then, before yeah, film yeah, yeah. actually, and that sort of thing. But what he did was he, he was a good salesman, and he did some interesting techniques. And also what he did was he created suspense as a genre. That's what he did was. That was his unique selling point. He oh, created, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he was also part of a much bigger cultural thing about suspense. The suspense was mainly used in the 1800s and, and that in headlines of real events. And this is where suspense has been usually associated with fear more. Because it would always be if a, a boat sank or anything like that, they'd have all the family are in suspense looking for the survivors or whatever, you know. And, yeah. and, they, and obviously they promoted uh, theatrical productions which did have suspense in, in those days as well. But even circus acts did. Um, particularly the tightrope, they would leave to the last because it, there was always this financial aspect as well to suspense. Uh, very quickly, just going on this because I think it's quite important, yeah, is that people um, were where we experienced real life <coughs> suspense in terms of where we watched tightrope walks. So the circus people said, look, we leave the best act to last and we really build it up that you the suspense is going to be really big because of, someone's going to risk their life. But they're doing it at the end to make sure people see all the other acts. Yeah, there's no, um, there's, there is no, uh, there's, there's a very good reason why we, why the phrase the money shot has become generic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's exactly, and also, um, you know, there was other electromechanical devices like pinball machines. There was one called suspense in the 1940s as well. Mm. It was like Hitchcock was fortunate because at that time suspense was coming away from the newspapers. I mean, it was about seven. Hundred thousand times the word suspense came up um, in headlines of newspapers for real stories in the 1800s. Wow. So that dropped down dramatically to only a few thousand in the 20th century. You know, so when we go to the 19th century, we go to the 20th century, and it dropped down because suspense became much more popularised on the film and cinema uh -huh. and in books. And but it is also about other aspects, as I mentioned, about circus and electromechanical devices as well so suspense grew that but what was interesting when the film started they couldn't make or produce long feature films so they had to do the serial film um, per, uh, Perils of um, Paul uh, is it Pauline uh, uh, Perils of Pauline I think it's called a very famous uh, she was for the cliffhanger which mm. was again was much more to the literature that was done uh, in 1873 that came out and that came out into film and they used this cliffhanger really effectively because they knew they could only produce a film for a very short period of time depending on how fast the reels were going yeah. so it could go up to 30 minutes it could be a few minutes but they would actually get people in these Nicodonian cinemas and they would actually see a short clip of um Pearl of, uh, she would always be Pauline would always be in a state of um a danger at the end of the clip to give them a cliffhanger to come in and see the next instalment the next day or the next week. So what they were doing was quite interesting. They found that suspense not only engaged the viewer, but also it was good to get money. It was good to know that they could actually produce these very short films um, and get people to keep coming back. And they'd always advertise that suspense gets really intense. You know, you look at some of these. Uh, you know, uh, these Americans and the newspapers and that sort of thing, the way that they were reporting on these things. You know, so suspense is, is has many different, there's many different sort of ways suspense can be structured. Right? I think when it came down to me looking at 
One, I had to find out what suspense was, as I mentioned, which we said this mediation process. Mm. Within that mediation process, whether it's the uh, woman on the, you know, who's being proposed to marriage, or whether it's something in the very scary and horror film, that we've got some sense of anticipatory stress. That's where I sort of came down to the experience. And then we, then what I looked at was, well, obviously, if I look at horror films, we're going to get a much more higher anxiety or anxiety, uh, anticipatory stress reaction. Yeah. So if I get a stronger one, then that's going to be better for me to measure. Uh, because um, the, the issues you've got with an unfolding narrative in moving images is that you've got so much data and information from that film you've got to be very careful what you're actually measuring because there are other emotions that play in when we watch films um, and even in horror films particularly horror films are focused on the emotion de disgust because we see gory images mm. and they're not going to they're not going to create suspense or even fear by seeing those gory images um, but it's the actual anticipation that those things are likely to happen create the fear and anxiety or suspense. Can I ask what's what did you differentiate between the the notion of suspension of disbelief and suspense? Because obviously, when we watch a film, read a book, or whatever, if it's if we know it's fiction, but we're going to invest in what's going on, then we have to almost like rub out the notion that we're reading fiction and, and treat it like it's real, which obviously is what Bill... You only get anxious because you kind of are bought into it, haven't you? You're kind of... You're empathising with something or somebody, a cause or an individual, you know, the will they get the marriage proposal, when when in reality it's, it's not real at all. So is, is, is that something you had to... To sort of differentiate between the idea of the, 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 the viewer going... The viewer or the reader going into the text has to start off wanting to experience this as much as the film it's, it's, make it's it happen. A very, good, very, a very good question. I like that question a lot. You know, there's lots of different answers for this. Um, but first of all, for my my main study, I did yeah. uh, studies, but my main study, yeah. that everybody had to enjoy horror films. Okay. They can't go and see it unless they enjoyed horror films. Because my, my pretext of doing this whole PhD was to have some sort of commercial... Um, viability of my research afterwards, mm -hmm. if an academic, but actually something I could take in the film industry and do something with, mm. which could be quite interesting. Um, so from that perspective, um, the disbelief thing is quite interesting because uh, it comes back down now because I use Susan Smith, the Su Susan Smith, the film scholar, professor, mm. um, studied Hitchcock's films and came up with four narrative structures that she could, well, three narrative structures that she could really identify with. And I think these were really useful because no one else, particularly in film studies, has never come up with something that's quite reasonable in that way that you could measure something. Mm. And what I mean by that, these are very tiny snippets of the film. And they, they, what the good thing is, though, that when you confine them in the film, they've got a, an actual duration, a time that you can actually process, in other words, how this story structure works. I've mentioned one which was precarious suspense, which um, Hitchcock mentions a lot. Yeah. But you've mentioned that about the vested interest in characters. Now, I totally agree that the vested characters are very important and essential for any film and story. However, direct suspense 
is where we can see, um, we can feel, and particularly in horror films, we are getting a far more direct suspense where we're not really associating necessarily with characters. Now, what I'm saying by that is that sound, I mean, horror is, a sound, is predominantly a sound-based medium, as Hitchkin said, Hitchkins, uh, came up with. And I agree with him in that sense, to some extent, where, apart from the gory scenes and everything else, what really gets their sense of fear is when we hear things, but we can't see what's going on. Yeah. So with the good thing with direct suspense and horror is very good because we can actually start to mess around with our own instinctive fears that we have, which is the darkness, where we have unknown dangers and that sort of thing. So when we start to hear sounds that are very discordant, um, uh, then we tend to really start to feel a sense of anxiety more of really what's going on. Um, so direct suspense can be by a sound that's off screen or an acousmatic sound, in other words, um, that's related to something in the story that would make us feel scared, whether it's somebody scraping uh, some sort of metallic screeching sound like a knife or something like that, or an axe against the floor, and uh, we can't see it, but we can hear it. We know that's the story we've seen that something's like that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, that is a direct form of suspense, but also we get a direct form of suspense where we may, and often this has happened a lot, particularly with the introduction of handheld cameras uh, or found footage films, is where we get to be more like the first person. We may have a character, we may have a cameraman or whatever, taking us through a house or uh, the woods or something. But in theory, in my research, many people in those situations don't necessarily associate themselves with the character, they associate the experience to themselves. And that does. Now, what you're saying about this, um, the suspension of this belief, is what media psychologists call narrative transportation. Okay. Which is where we become part of the story. Got you. As well. This goes a bit further than what you're thinking. So it's uh -huh. not, not just engaging in the film. And I did find evidence of this, um, where people actually felt they were part of the story. And usually that happened a lot with direct suspense, where they were waiting for things to come on screen, um, and they probably didn't have a character. I mean, some of my, uh, we'll come to it, but some of the clips, I mean, my clips were very short in my study. Mm. Um, they were between 1 and 90 seconds long. So they weren't very big, but you consider how big a feature film is. So your, your clips were out of context. It wasn't like you studied the whole film and then looked where this, where suspense does not work. Yeah, well, the reason is is because when you had to look at this, um, you have to look at, when you do a study, mm -hmm. you have to look at how long it's going to be. My studies was, my study duration was about 90 minutes. Okay. I, what I did was, okay, we'll go on a bit about study now, we, we might as well. So what I did, what I do, how do I pick my films, for example? You know, most people say, oh, this is a good film, that's a good film, or that was really good. No, I don't do things like that. So we have to have some sort of structure to this. So I had some sort of very key themes, like it had to be a conflict between a protagonist and antagonist. Mm -hmm. that, that had to be there. Even if the antagonist wasn't there, there was a, a perceived conflict. The protagonists had to be isolated, 
and it had to be dark. All my clips were, well, 96% of them were really more or less in pitch black. Okay. Um, you did see them. You did see characters, don't get me wrong, but it was very dark. Um, and the reason being is, is like, what I was trying to do was look at the science parts of things. Now, I found out in my research that whether you see something in a cinema or you think about it, you imagine something, or you experience it in real life, your anxiety response will be pretty much the same. It won't be much different. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, and the, the, um, when I talk about the way... Uh, well, actually, I, I, I better talk about the films first, because I need to be a bit careful. I don't want to... I'm going to talk about how I measured suspense in a minute. Yeah, but anyway, on, so, sorry about that, but let's go on to the film. So, okay, so... I looked at I looked at Susan Smith. Thought Susan Smith, you, you've come up with some interesting ideas here in terms yeah. of give me three narrative structures: direct, as I mentioned before, precarious, yeah. and shared is where we actually engage the emotions with the character more because we see both of them in a state of, you know, the character is being attacked now, mm-hmm. so they know they're being attacked, and we do, so we are empathising with them in that sense. So those three narrative structures were important. But also there was a combination of how these might play out as well, because some of them can be synchronised together at the same time, or they can be put side by side, and as she called it, a composite form of suspense. So I had a composite form of suspense, uh, direct, precarious and shared. They were my narrative structures, and these were very, there's the reason why my clips are short, was because they are quite short. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, so I had those sort of narrative structures, and what I did was then my film selection had to fit those narrative structures. Okay. And that was difficult. That was quite difficult. My films were always post-2000. I didn't do anything before then because there's a lot that's changed in the way that we see film uh, in that time. Okay. For example, camera shot changes. You see, people don't realise <coughs> that when you talk about the story, but when we start to look at the cinematic elements of storytelling, things have changed dramatically. Is, you know, we look at a, um, a nine-second shot would be an average back in the 40s, and it was about two or three seconds, about three seconds, I think, by the turn of this decade, and it's probably less now. So basically, we're having a lot more camera shots than we used to, and there may be various reasons for that, but one of them is probably technology as well, and the way that we construct films is what we did then. So what, also a lot so what were the films then that you what were the films you chose then? How did you talk, did you get it down to? So what I did was I, I started looking at I wanted to do it in different categories. So I split it into subgenres, supernatural, zombie, home invasion, and science fiction. Okay. That had sense of horror. So I looked at these films and I just really, I mean I what I did was I had eight films all together. So on my supernatural I had Grave Encounters 2, which mm-hmm. is not a well-known film. In fact, I would say it was quite a bad film, but it did have some really, in- it did have these narrative structures which were quite interesting and it fit the criteria. So it isn't about whether a film, people will go and watch these films, it's more to do with whether they fit the criteria. Got you, got you, got you. So we had Grave Encounters, the science fiction one we had was Pitch Black. Okay. Which makes a bit of an obvious one. Yeah. Um, another a zombie one we had is Quarantine. Got you. And then we had Home Invasion with Strangers. The Strangers. 
good choice. Um, then we've got. Sorry, I'm just going to go through these while I go through this. Um, then we had another zombie was the descent. Okay. That was in the cave, and then the other supernatural sinister. Good choices. Apart from grave encounters too. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, but like I said, and. Uh, uh, you know, I, I like that, yeah. Um, so let's see, what else have we got? Oh, yeah, Science Fiction Cloverfield. Yeah. And I've just got to come up the next one now, so so I'm just going to go through the order that they went through. Which one? Which one? Which one? Oh, Silent House was the other. Uh, Silent House. Okay. Was the home invasion. Which is literally a video game adaptation, isn't it? Uh, uh, no, that's Silent Hill. Oh, Silent, Silent Hill. Hill. Uh, yeah, Silent House is a... Actually, it's, it, it comes over as a night in, uh, home invasion, but really it's more about child abuse, actually, about... I don't, know, the I don't know that one. But it's... But it still. It, it, it looks like it's a home invasion to the whole film. You only find that out at the end. Okay. Um, so, yeah, basically, so there are the sort of categories that we had. Now, um, so, basically, all these have those narrative structures I mentioned, mm-hmm. which is great. So we got something good. And so it was a case of then me going into those films and extracting those ones um, and then putting them together as a, a whole film. Now, when you're measuring these sort of films, now, uh, Susan Smith would certainly criticise and say, you can't do this, you, you can't measure direct or vicarious and shared these very short clips because the person is out of context of the whole film, as you mentioned. Mm. And... Um, but that is, that's, that's not quite true, actually, uh, because what you find is that people naturally see a beginning and an end to what you show. They will naturally, from their own story, comprehension, their own models of understanding the story, they will have to do that. Now, I was going to say, not, I mean, just from a basic screenwriting sense, you know, everything's got a beginning, middle and end. It just gets bigger and bigger, the begin, you know, the, the, from a very... But it, for yeah. a very minor scene through to the whole script, it has to have a beginning. Yeah. To be a narrative, it has to have a beginning, middle, and end. Well, for a particular, particularly for a Hollywood uh, Western type. Yeah, for Anglo Saxon narrative, yeah. Other things, they tend to be very different in terms mm. of the whole narrative structures anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think that this, that when you're looking at that, so although you are looking at, um, you are extracting these things, remember they're extracting because I'm trying to find out the construction of suspense. Yeah in a certain type of story parameters. Now, we've already got those parameters, the, the dark, the isolation, and that sort of thing, those sort of very key themes. Mm-hmm. We've got these sort of, we're doing the horror film, so we know what we're taking from that. And what we're trying to do is to find out. Now, the reason why I'm doing it this way is because there have been neuroscience work with a lot of the big movie houses like Paramount and 20th Century Fox, um, going back six years ago or more, where they actually got neuroscience, and they're doing it now. They have neuroscientists. Uh, I think the big company called Nielsen de- deals with it. And basically, they they measure probably they can measure probably someone on a brain imaging, and they will do a whole film. Uh, <coughs> I mean, it's a bit natural the situation, so you have to look up, you have to lay down and look up. But a lot of these. The problems with a lot of fMRI sort of studies is that fear, people can get quite scared of being in them because of the noise they make. And so if you're actually dealing with fear and anxiety, people might be getting that from elsewhere. 
so it is a bit more difficult. Very expensive to do as well. But anyway, okay, so say for example, everything works great. They've got their engagement curve to show where people are really engaged within the films. They know when people are really enjoying it when they're not. So, okay, we'll say that. So what they do when they tell the director, and they say, look, this point here is not working. That's not really useful to him whatsoever. What I tend to do is use my data and information where I can tell them what's not working, whether it's the lighting, the sound, the narrative structure, or other elements that you could look at where you could probably give a more optimal range of how he could deal with it to, I wouldn't say fix it, but to actually to make it better. Because at the end of the day, the filmmaker does not have this knowledge when they're going into it. Filmmakers in 20 years' time will have this knowledge, but they don't at the moment because they are based on a very much more creative base, and I understand that. I mean, I've been a designer for the last 20, 30 years, so I understand how creative processes work. But I think that when you're looking at neuroscience coming in and doing these sort of things, so what I'm saying is you need... What they've done is, you see, psychologists will even create... They very often like to use extract um, clips from films and they change them themselves to create an effect. They want to create another certain emotions. They'll try and do it by using films. But I think that they don't understand storytelling very easily. Uh, they don't have the, the sort of techniques in that. And they've even, even in my studies or my research, shown this, that it is quite problematic. Because although they can probably give some information to a filmmaker that things may not be working, they can't really say what in that whether it's the narrative the plot line or whether it may be some aspects particularly uh, to do with uh, cinematic techniques the sound lighting and whatever so what i did was by taking these narrative structures i knew what i was measuring mm. i knew i was measuring a narrow a story structure whether it's direct the care is shared or a composite form of suspense and i also knew that i was obviously dealing with certain horror films that i got similarities even if they were different subgenres they still have this dark, you know, darkness that they have to deal with. So, so, so can I ask you, just to, uh, maybe I've just, no, missed, it. Maybe just, maybe just missed it. So the, fil the films you listed before, the Pitch Black and the Sinister, etc., yeah, yeah. you, you extracted what you thought were demonstrations of suspense as, as an element of that film, and did you put them all together as one reel so people watched them back to back? Or did yeah, they... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, this is the interesting thing. I'm glad you brought that point up. Now, in psychology studies, you have to be careful about effects from one clip affecting another clip. Yeah. So I had to do certain things with this. First of all, these narrative structures had really interesting timings because um, vicarious um, suspense had was if you added up all the film clips together in vicarious suspense it was a lot less uh, time compared to, say, composite suspense, which had a mixture of these narrative structures. So I always had the shortest narrative structure, first of all, that was going to be shown, and eight clips, because there are eight films. Yeah. Uh, so eight clips were shown of direct, vicarious, shared, and composite, but they went in the order of vicarious suspense, then direct, shared, and composite. So they got longer as they went on, the clips. Now, basically, within each clip, there was a, um, they had on the screen, it was made as one film, mm -hmm. so what they was, uh, they would have a sound, I mean, I was obviously there anyway, but they had a sound saying, 
you know, the study's about to begin. Um, and uh, then 10 seconds later, the first clip came on. When they saw that clip, they could record their response to it. A message will come up saying you've got 30 seconds now to explain what you said, what you heard, or what caught your eye, or whatever. I can't remember. I think it's much more about um, what was what stood out most to you. That okay. was basically. But if they have more time, what do they see, hear, and feel? So, and what I think what people are, would film theorists and even filmmakers would be quite surprised is how sophisticated people are who watch films. I think they don't do them justice at all in that sense. Uh, they're quite because I, I, I'll tell you very quickly when I had my external exam uh, um, with my my Viva exam, um, the professor external one from Amsterdam uh, said to me, he said um, about you know you know what about your the people who were in your study seem to be very sophisticated with how they were discussing the films. Do you think it would be better to use a different sample? And I said, well, no, because these are the people who like horror films, which is important. But this is because the viewers are more aware of camera shots and angles. They describe things quite well. Not all of them. I'm not saying that, but I would say a good 60 to 70 percent do. And they, they, they actually are far better than what most people think in terms of understanding what's going on in the film. Um, so... I think I think kind of I think what you're tapping into there, and it's interesting that the the person sort of sort of reviewing your review work, as it were, is pointing out something that I think a lot of filmmakers have experienced during tests for their test screenings, in the sense of one only one person has to say, "I didn't understand why the uncle shot the brother," you know, and then suddenly the the producers of the film are going right. We can't have that doubt. Let's fix that problem. Even though 99 out of 100 people would quite easily have read because of the way they, they translate film and what they see, the fact that any one person has doubt is somehow a reason to, to, to dumb a film down. And we see it, you know, obviously through the way that some, you know, when you look at a, I guess the, the basic example would be a European art house film versus a, a traditional Hollywood movie. Or even like your, your quarantine that you used versus Wreck, which is what it was, which is what it was adapted from. You know, yeah, know. that they begin to over. We begin. There's a there's a there's a want to over explain, and therefore, like like the inverse of this is to test what suspense is. You almost need to get the most virginal viewer to find out what suspense is. Whereas I think what you were doing is is the, is the cleverer thing, which is to go, okay, these are the people that want to see this. What is it that they like? Why do they like it? As a way of measuring what what is good and what is bad, does, yeah, does that I, make... I think I think what you've also tapped into there, Stuart, is also how bad movie studios can be. I mean, I know personally that Sinister Two, which I didn't use, um, actually changed their ending four times. Okay, still didn't, still didn't work, and I think it's because they don't do enough work for various reasons at the beginning. Uh, there's too many assumptions being made, and also, like you said. Snakes on a Plane is a great example of really bad, using bad information from the viewer because I think it was going to be called Flight 123 or something, originally the film at New Line Cinema. And basically they, um, they wanted the audience and viewers to really contribute a lot to the film. So they kept saying they wanted more violence, they wanted more this, they wanted more that. So they did everything they said and it bombed. And the thing, the thing is, is because it's, 
a lack of really understanding of what people are saying because I had to do this in my study because you've got people saying things about a clip and it may not always marry up to their psychophysiological responses and you have to understand why that is and you have to be very objective and understand why those mechanisms sometimes don't um, match up and there are very reasons why mm. which we could explain but basically they did have these 30 seconds after 30 seconds they had another sign saying stop now the next clip's about to start so then they have another clip coming up and then they uh, it carries on and yeah. then halfway through the study they have a break for two minutes where they're just sitting there because it is this whole process of 32 clips takes about 40 minutes to what, go through. Can I ask, what were they watching it on? Were you, did, you, did you get a screening room? Or did you just watch on a laptop? Uh, or No, just on a laptop. Okay. No, just watch on a laptop. And you'll say, well, why did you do that? You should be in a cinema. However, when we look at technology again, we mentioned about shots. The really, the um, uh, Accenture did reports on tablets now. And people are seeing far more feature films on tablets. That is the most popular mobile device that people are using and watching a film. That's got email, that's got all sorts of distractions. That's got a very short screen. I've been on planes where people have got their um, iPads out and been watching films on it as well. People are so used to watching film, they're not really attached now to the, the large cinematic auditorium. So we've not seen films just like that. I mean, many the study would have been you'd have had more arguments about this, and would have had to do the study differently if it had been sort of 10, 15 years ago, because people didn't have these devices. But people even watching stuff on smartphones now on very small screens. So really, the screen size doesn't really matter. And I always looked at it this way, and even about the context as well. That if I can actually find that there are strong anxiety responses in a clip that's very short in my study, then it may be even stronger, obviously, in the film. So it's not going to be I weak. think, I, gotta, I mean, I, I'd argue the toss there, I think. I think, I think, I know this, I know we do what, we do consume our media in all different ways because of convenience, but, but there is, there is something about, like, almost like going to church now, about going to a cinema, because you've got the, the sort of lights down, the shared experience, of, of watching, which obviously watching on a... On that's a, that's what, changing those two. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not disputing, I'm not disputing it isn't changing. I'm saying that, that, that there's still they, that, that, that the reactions to film, they coexist. There is a choice and obviously for convenience sake many people are watching stuff on, on their iPad. I mean I, 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 going back to your theory about sound, I think headfo yeah. headphones and or sticking my iPad through my hi-fi and watching watching on my iPad and having great sound is actually actually enhances the experience much more than if I had crap sound and I could project it on a ten foot screen. Um, you know, in terms of how I enjoy it. I know, I understand where you're coming from. I think the problem is it's not just about convenience, it's a cultural thing. See, why I studied suspense as well was and why suspense is more important for filmmakers to get right now mm. is because of what we're talking about. We are now experiencing fragmented narratives from feature films. People are watching feature films in different ways. And when they start watching them on uh, smaller screens and devices and that, they've got other interferences or other disruptions. We're not seeing the whole thing anywhere. And it disrupts the whole mechanism, so we're actually getting a different sort of viewer. 
And we also have to go back to the YouTube uh, phenomenon that started in 2006 and where we are now. And now we're very much used to consuming very short clips. We, you know, we wouldn't have, done, like I said, this discussion would not be here. We would not be having this discussion if we had gone um, in the last century, uh, the, you know, in the 1990s, for example. We wouldn't be talking like this. We would be talking and I'd be agreeing with what you're saying completely. We'd, also, we'd also have to sit in the same room. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. Yeah, and then exactly what I'm saying is, though, that, you know, you watch it on telly or you'd watch it at the cinema. Everyone would say, well, it's better at the cinema. And then some people would get, oh, I've got some bigger speakers and all the rest of it. But the point is that people now are seeing films all over the place and people don't always go to the, the cinema. I'm not saying that. I've looked but at I, But, I, but I also, I, the, other, the other side of this argument is that we have, we, we not me and you personally, but we, we, the film industry, have have allowed, because of the way technology's raced forward, because they haven't been able to stop it, so I don't think it's about wanting it to happen, it's, it's allowed the consumption of their media in ways that they wouldn't choose to do it. Now, you could argue there's a bit of oh, catch-up, mate. Sorry? I totally, agree. I totally agree with you there. I totally agree. I mean, directors are appalled that people are watching a film on a mobile device and that, but... What, what, rather than them being appalled by it, I think they, they haven't got much choice, but they need to adapt. And I do think the film industry is quite conservative in that sense. It doesn't mean that the film... I agree with you that if you see a big screen and you're in a dark room, uh, it's, it's quite, you know, it just have a, you know, it brings things larger than life. You're going to get probably a stronger experience. But I think that they, there's also this need of what, the consumer's gone, and now technologies took that. But I would, but I would, yeah. but I would, I would argue though, given you know, and this is only anecdotal evidence, but I go to Fright Fest every year, and I speak to people that, that watch, uh, that consume a lot of films, and and believe you me, a lot of what they consume is just the convenience of being able to consume it, and then they get to go to Fright Fest, where the only way to consume the film is to sit in a cinema, and it's yeah. it's like when they discuss a film, it's like chalk and cheese. It's like you discuss a film that you've watched on your iPad. You go, it was all right. It was all right. And then they come out of the cinema, and often it could be an all right film, but because you've had the experience of the cinema, it becomes a different a different response to what you've seen, if that makes sense. Um, and I think, I, think, I think that's being lost, but I, think, but I don't think it's... I think I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds whether or not cinema as a, as a medium has to follow... The, the audience down the iPhone route or cinema has to make better films to make people appreciate that it shouldn't be watched on an iPhone. Well, the, the other thing I think you've got as well is there's much more blurred image, uh, blurred um, uh, aspects of storytelling coming together. There's interactive storytelling, there's VR, there's the way that transmedia is taking off where you've got very short film clips that people look at and then they see a short film clip and then their mobile phone rings and they give them a message on the website and they, they are the protagonists, they are in the story, but it's still using film. What I'm saying is I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you at all about the cinematic experience, but I, what I am saying is that, um, that the cinematic experience is not just the only way that we consume film now. Mm, and no, we I are, agree with that too. So, I mean, none of the precipitants, they knew they were going to see short film clips. And I, I, probably I had got one person who was um, probably not the best type of person to study because she seemed quite desensitised to a lot of the films. 
And she did sometimes say, I didn't understand the context of this or whatever. But it was one out of 27 that went through my study, um, which is not, not very significant. Everybody else seemed to just get involved like they were watching the film. They didn't really think of it. And also, a lot of them had seen these films before, because I actually had to find out before um, they did the study of what films I'd watched before. So I who'd actually seen the film before as well. Keith, can you, just, can, you just, Keith can you just repeat yourself there? I missed, you just dropped out then. You were talking about, um, I got as far as you asked if they'd seen the film before. So do you want to just... Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, they, they had a questionnaire there to fill in before they, when they came to the study, like, they had to sign all the ethics and all the rest of the forms yeah. and stuff. And, and then they had to, um, and they had to fill in a questionnaire which had lots of films on there, including the ones I was putting in the study. They okay. didn't know which ones they were, and they had to tick the boxes, basically. And, yeah, there, I mean, I think the most people, a lot of people, I think more people watch Quarantine than probably the other films. Really? Um, <laughs> the Quarantine, actually, you might laugh, had the strongest anxiety response out of all of them. Well, well, Wreck Wreck is a very good film, so it's hard to get it wrong, really. You know, if you're just copying one of the best... I mean, in personal taste, funny enough, I saw Quarantine first. And I wouldn't say Quarantine particularly was a great film, but it was better than Wreck, in my view. Whoa! Heresy. Especially the last ten minutes, because it's the last ten minutes of the film is really where I started looking at my pilot studies. Mm. I use quite a few mixed narrative structures and they use a five minute clip from that segment and even in my pilot studies that was quite showing a lot high because in my pilot studies I even tried other films like Hitchcock, The Birds, mm. particularly the scene where the birds come on the playground equipment behind again a precarious form of suspense there. Um, so so Hitchcock, let, can I, can I, I'm, I'm just conscious of time Keith. Oh, sorry, yeah. So, no, sorry, sorry. I'm enjoying it, but I'm just conscious of the time. Um, what would what would be um, what did you learn from this then that you you fit you know from a from a from that when we started the conversation you're a, you 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 could title yourself yeah, as a producer yeah. of suspense and and, and, and well first and of all. Uh, the thing I haven't mentioned, Stuart, is okay. What how do I measure this uh, suspense? Well, basically, first of all. Um, I looked at anticipatory stress reaction is going to be the strongest type of feeling of suspense. Yeah. Um, so I used anxiety. So I measured anxiety you, uh, and measuring the electrical changes of the skin of the viewer. Yeah. So when I was watching these, um, they got some uh, electrodes to their fingertips. Uh, basically, I simplify it. In <coughs> sense. Yeah. And really, it's just measuring the electrical changes because this measures... A sympathetic nervous system and particularly a fight flight response system yeah. which is going to trigger by anxiety now if we use heart rate we've got problems because any other organ we sort of try to analyze has the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system working together and that can be um, quite difficult um, to know whether they're actually experiencing fear or not so usually and this is by literature as well we're looking at that um, so basically, from the literal angle, the sympathetic nervous system is important, so the skin is the only way of doing that, and that's why I used uh, the electrical changes. And what that does, I was looking for certain types of peak responses. So if you imagine a wavy line in front of you now, yeah. as a general wave, um, well, that's called skin production level. 
But when we get little peaks that come up, that's gene production responses. Now I call these different names, but I'm not going to go into too much complexity on here. Um, but basically the peaks were what I was really interested in, in terms of the duration of the time it takes to get to the peak. So when they, the stimulus hits, hit, affects them, and it triggers this response, how long in seconds is it going on for? Okay. And also the amplitude, the height of it, because this will tell me. And what I did was I devised uh, a system where I had levels one, two, three, and four, one being the strongest and four being the weakest. And basically then I, and also then if I knew that there was um, a skin, skin production response after three seconds, so between three and 14 seconds, then this is going to be a very strong response because we're getting durability. Durability is measured by the duration of how long it takes to get to this peak. And then the intensity is by the actual height, the amplitude of how it goes. Yeah. So that's how I looked at the anxiety. So when we got that and the viewer feedback, the viewer feedback was good to contextualize their experience. And then I used the other data was me doing a textual analysis, but not from a psychoanalyst point of view, but really looking at what the filmmakers attempted to do. Okay. Um, or what they're trying to do. And that's, that's something that most of us can do reasonably well in terms of looking at what, what, what's happening in the film uh, and that sort of thing. So there's a texture analysis about the light and whatever. But what I did was I also looked at, um, apart from the narrative structures, I looked at the cinematic techniques, and I found out there were very common themes to suspense: what is concealed or delayed, or revealed, and also, also the empathy uh, connection as well. Those things which what I looked at in my study and looked at how these anxiety responses um, operated. So we can give you some very quick things here, some very quick hits. On the descent, for example, there was a, uh, an incident where we had a zombie coming out from the cave from the ceiling, going like that, you know, and surprising us, a sudden scare response or whatever. Yeah. And that was quite interesting because we talked about scare responses in air communication before, not today. But there was an interesting one because what it did was it led to suspense. See, a lot of scare uh, themes in horror films may not necessarily lead to suspense. They just keep using the scare tactics all the time. So it's not really suspense building, but this did. Because the woman got away, and of course then people are more concerned about is she going to get attacked or whatever. And obviously yeah. there's options after that. So in this 28-30-second clip or something, she's running through the cave. So we get the point where, more or less, when the... Um, zombie appears again, we start to get, you know, very strong anxiety responses on this chase through the dark caves. But what ironically happened was they started to do too many jump cuts. And jump cuts were going at about um, three a second. It was really quite fast in the fight sequence that eventually happened. And what happened was these, uh, what the, where I would say the director went possibly wrong here, and he wouldn't know this of course, was he focused a lot on the, uh, the zombie's face. There was a lot of close-ups to the zombie face, and there was some, combined with some long shots of the zombie, where it didn't look very powerful at all, it looked quite small and insignificant. But the actual close-ups to the zombie face, actually in my research, find that people don't get particularly scared of. In fact, because there were so many jump cuts happening, 
and people actually said they were confused. They, they didn't. Uh, it it um, sort of made them feel, you know, what the hell is going on? Their psychophysiological responses declined for much of the actual fighting thing um, scene altogether. And this is this is typical where we get too many jump cuts happening. We'll get this in a lot of action scenes. You know, people when we get actually the story. We actually start to see certain stimulus or a story um, image, in a sense, or a still, or what we can call it, or a frame. And basically, our brain will process that and connect it to the next one and the next one. But when we get too much that's happening, that we don't get those story bits, there's too much of a bigger gap, or it gives us too much information, then suspense dies anyway. And people start to say, well, I've seen the the zombie, it wasn't that scary, and all the rest of it. Or oh, the story was very com not confusing because of the context. It was more confusing because of what the cinematic techniques were doing. So that was one that didn't work very well, but it did show the scare side where it did actually generate a quite intense experience. But in quarantine, where that came up very high was at the uh, quite near the end in that last 10 minutes. There's a segment where uh, the woman's in the dark, you can see she's in the dark, um, uh, obviously you've got night vision camera, the lighting's on her. In the lighting, how they use the lighting with it, obviously they capture her facial expressions of fear. And we talked about empathising. And this happened in Silent House in a different context. But when we start to see uh, people being quite in fear and in pain, we tend to empathise them more, rather than actually seeing the monster's face. Of course, yeah. Because the monster's face doesn't actually give us as much scare as what people think it does. That's why a lot of good films, where they seem to hide a lot about the antagonist, seem to do a lot better than, um, than ones that show who really the battle's going to be with straight away. Now, it can be the opposite as well. There can be a flip side. Um, but, um, for example, in Jaws, for example, most people who went to see Jaws like I did when it first opened, we had a big poster of a massive fish. We had a lot of publicity about what this fish did. And we, it triggers our own imagination how these things are going to play out. So although we might have known a little bit about the film, it does help us sometimes to create a stronger mood state before we go in to see the film. And then our brain automatically research for these things. And also we're looking out for those nasty scenes that people describe that were really scary. So we we play out the mind, so when we know it can happen. But like I said, when we get too much information within the film itself, it, it, it just dissipates suspense. So okay, going back to your descent example, yeah. The, the, now that happens quite late on, and that also is quite late on in the movie. You've you've watched. I mean, I know the bit you're talking about, and it's it's probably about an hour, at least an hour into the film, and the film isn't peppered with fast action shooting at all. In fact, the film. The film is quite gentle until it starts to introduce the monsters. Um, so, in a way, the the you know you know it, much like in a novel where you know chapters get shorter when you when you want the reader to feel like the pace is is picking up. Haven't you sort of picked a clip there that is in terms of the the rhythm of the whole movie, not whether or not suspense can be measured in that clip. In the in the rhythm of the whole movie, that was that was to signify the panic going on then by jumping around and obviously out of context. Yeah, the whole thing was there wasn't panic. The whole point is that viewers also said, "Well, she can handle herself," you know, because she got a pickaxe in her hand. 
what I'm saying is that um, when you see in quarantine where the woman looks very vulnerable, she's in the dark, she's showing a sense of real expressions of fear, she knows something's in the room mm-hmm. um, and she doesn't know where it is. And for, I mean, it has a double vicarious form of suspense because the zombie's in the room and doesn't know she's in there. Okay. And he's like quite close to her and he's behind her. There's a lot of loud sounds and stuff like that. We don't see what the zombie looks like. In fact, in that film, some people said, well, the zombie creature doesn't look that scary, but they would talk about what did make them scared more. So, 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 to... so, so, so you, you basically, you were, so let's just so, summarise this right. So you were showing people these complex clips. They were giving you a immediate response, how they saw it, how they read it based on your prompts. You were also measuring anxiety through electrical yeah. impulses. And it was, what I could find out, what they couldn't tell me is... Exactly, I was going to say, did you, did you, that's, what, yeah. that's what I was dying to ask, is that, did you find, like, say for example, the, the desensitised woman who, who said, yeah, well, that was, there was no suspense there for me, was, was you finding that the electrodes were telling another story? Or... Well, I think it, yes, yeah, you do get that, and uh, there's there some really good examples of where a viewer might say uh, there was one viewer who said, "Well, you know that that wasn't that scary," and he saw very strong responses. And then you find out that I did do little interviews at the end that this guy described the form of suspense he looked at as one that he normally would think is really scary. Okay. But the reason why he didn't find it scary was because the images that came up on screen weren't scary. This was in Silent House, where we have a Polaroid camera showing a few snaps of the building. And when they come up, people are anticipating what they come up. We can tell that by their anxiety responses. But when they come up, they're not that scary. And it did fit what he said, but you had to understand, you have to really dissect what they're saying and understanding the psychophysiological Contact. What the psychophysiological data tells us is that although someone can say, yeah, that clip was quite scary, that bit was that, we can actually find out exactly what, by the millisecond, and what did cause that, um, that sense of anxiety. And also we can even look what happened before it as well to okay. see whether that might have an impact on it as well. So it is, it is, um, it is about understanding that balance of understanding what people say and what the psychophysiological data tells us. But we certainly can tell that people are getting certain strokes, because people might have a shock scare. I mean, it's sinister in one of my clips at the end, there's someone coming out, and all of a sudden they're running over someone's face with a lawnmower, with a a very loud stinger, a screeching sound, the musical stinger coming up, to try to make people jump. Now, everyone made them jump, but of course, first thing they started to talk about was that. They didn't talk about the rest of the clip. So you have to be... And wary, and I put these, um, <coughs> these sort of surprise scare tactics, uh, these um, direct forms of suspense at times, in the clips on purpose to see how they would actually function anyway. Now, from uh, a storytelling point of view, it, what, what I'm, my, my gut instinct here is that you're, the, 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 the identifying of what makes, makes suspense work or not is... is, is isn't sto- isn't necessarily about storytelling because obviously if you're if you're showing these individual clips regardless of whether or not each clip has its own little beginning middle and end they're yeah. obviously portions of something that's a bigger story now um what i mean and, and i'm not going to for one minute expect uh for all the work you did on this research project to start sort of give me some glib responses yes this is what we should do this is what we don't do but 
it would it would be nice for the for the purposes of the audience this podcast would be what would be what would be two recommendations that your research came up that filmmakers going forward in the future should know about about how suspense <coughs> works in their movie is that is that too big an ask or is no, that is that reason no, that reason no, no it's fine that is and I, I, like I said the main thing is that if you really want to get people to scared focus on the person who's feeling anxious, the actor or actress that's actually shown their facial expressions are really important. If you want people to scream, make sure they change their pitch to a much higher pitch. And it's usually a woman that's probably better at that sort of thing. Mm. I think if you want to get something in a frame, there's lots of times where filmmakers, and even I will do it in, in, in the way that I look at story, but at least I know what I'm doing at times. But even still, when we get an image of something that's quite scary, and then we jump cut to the person's face, right? Mm. Of them being looking worried. And then we go back to the other one, yeah, back and back and forward. Those things do not work as effective, and they're certainly not as effective as seeing the um, antagonist in the same frame as the protagonist, and particularly when they can't see each other. Those, those, so when you get some sort of juxtaposition of the um, antagonist, the <coughs> antagonist in the same frame. No, I see, I, I see what you. I mean, in in a way, this is kind. In a way, this points to, and, and this is rudimentary understanding, dear listener. I'm not saying I fully understand this, but in terms of, in terms of what you would call formalist cinema, which is you, if you if you lock a frame and let action happen in the frame. The longer you hold on something, the more the audience has to think about it. So, if you put all your attention on a terrified hero, then we're having to think about their fear, aren't we? And if we can't see what they're scared of, then we can only imagine what they're scared of, which is so much more powerful. And you're also waiting for something to pop up on the screen. I mean, for example, there was a clip in Cloverfield I did with Precarious Suspense. It was only eight seconds long, and it had a really strong anxiety response. You can get people in suspense very quickly without. See, I think that a lot, like you mentioned about pacing, pacing is important, don't get me wrong. But I think into the intercutting scenes very quickly to think that's increasing the pace of suspense or tension. It doesn't. It does the opposite. That's what I found in the study. Um, I think that if you actually use other story elements, like in the Cloverfield, there were some big of these insects crawling on the ceiling in the dark. And they were filming, and the guys didn't know what was behind them on the ceiling, but the viewer could see them in the background. And they were getting closer to them. So it was very quickly, they adapted that very quickly. I mean, that's within eight seconds. Someone actually understanding the story. See, again, we don't, again, it's about understanding story comprehension. People will understand the story context as long as you've actually selected the clip properly. They will actually understand it. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess, I'm thinking about thinking about the examples you used. I mean, Pitch Black is is a fantastic example because obviously the things the things themselves live in the dark. So, exactly. so they 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 but they. There was quite an interesting one. I had a good clip on that actually, but it wasn't really much to do with the. the I did have one with the creature and that sort of thing. And again, that was more vicarious. It was on the cave wall, and she didn't see it there. But I, the one that really was strongest in that was her trying to get out the cave. We didn't actually see the creatures, we could hear them. 
Um, and we knew that, and all of a sudden, a, a, a rope that she was using was being tugged in another direction, and she kept falling down the cave and having to climb back up again. But you knew something down below was quite nasty, ready for her. So I think it's actually having, it's always, it's about the gore thing. It's about this might happen. And, 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 and because people know that might happen or that someone's going to get caught or mutilated or whatever, and you're teasing them with that. You see, this is where the scare shocks don't work so much. They're, they're important and I would use them in a film. But if they use too much, everyone starts to know when they're going to happen. In fact, in Conjuring 2, that happened. There was a group of people in the audience that took the mickey out of the film because they knew when a scare response was going to happen in the film. And some guy didn't like it. It started a fight in the cinema, and they banned it in France. Um, and I think that the irony of this is say, say that again. Sorry, they they did what in France? So basically, they shown this the Conjuring two. Yeah. And one part of the audience knew what was coming up, and they didn't see the film. They just you can preempt when there's going to be a scare shock. I think now if most people have gone to these films. Yeah. So they started taking the Mickey, like screaming and shouting before it happened or whatever. This upset another person who was actually enjoying the film and it caused a fight and France banned the film. Okay. Have you ever, have you, just, just as a digression, have you ever been to the uh, Brussels International Fantastic Film Festival? No, I haven't. They, they, they have a whole cult of that. I went to see a movie there and groups of the audience were basically part of the experience of watching a film there was yeah. baiting the film almost. So, for example... When a full moon came on screen, a pocket of the audience howled, even though even though it wasn't a werewolf film. Or every time somebody does the walk into the dark and goes, hello, you know, yeah. the classic horror trope, again, another pocket of the audience would go, yoo-hoo! And it was the most surreal... I mean, it, it, can, it, could, it could ruin a movie. Yeah. I mean, the one I watched, thankfully, it kind of... It, it only helped enhance it because in the end, they kind of shut up. And stop doing it because they got involved with the film. But I think, yeah, but I think it's also about is the story really gripping people? Is the mm. story this is where the story is really the kit? You know, and we're talking about a process. I am where you're. What I'm trying to do with the techniques is trying to form it in a more creative way and bring it into filmmaking, in terms of really uh, getting a far better engagement with the viewer into the characters in the story world. Uh, because that's really essential because if we don't get that and we and a lot of horror films I have to say can be quite superficial I'm not saying all of them but a lot of them can be well no and they are because they're just horror films and, and I think yeah, ah, yeah. I think that's a good point you made but horror films I think have got a far bigger dimension to them no no I was not. about to say my problem is is that when people make just horror films is when they do the genre disservice which brings me full circle to the, the the guy the guy whose video clip we what I was I shared on the on the with the Shadowlands group, he does this you know why what's up with horror films and he refers to uh, the Babadook and he refers to it follows um, as being good examples but because they book a trend they don't do you know obviously Babadook is an is an amazing drama about grief and and it's inter I don't know if you've seen there's a great there's an interview with okay. Jason Bloom. On um, of Bloom of, of Jason Blum of Blumhouse, obviously yeah, I know, I know, the, yeah. the absolute you know the absolute masters of um, of the five million dollar mainstream horror movie, 
um, you can say what you like about the sequels, but their their first their first films of most of them are doing you know are, are, are doing a, a good service to horror. And um, he talks about the fact that when they're going through their story development phases, on this interview with Brett Easton Ellis on his podcast, he said he said that we take out all the horror and see if it if it could work as a Sundance movie, because they're going we want you know basically we want characters we don't just want a series of scares you know like I mean is it in Barton Fink where he when he goes into the offices and he gets shown the chart on the wall he goes every ten pages we want a fight. Because <laughs> that's what a western is. It's every ten minutes there's a fight um, to the scriptwriter, and I think the horror stuff. I've reviewed enough horror stuff where you know right away that someone's made a horror film because they like horror films. They've not made a horror film because they have something to say, which I think is a very different thing. You know, as in like Jennifer Kent with Babadook runs a lot deeper than just simply what if it is. A, it, 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 Anyone that describes it as what if the character of a children's book was evil and came to life has watched the wrong film, in a way. I, th- I think it's interesting you say that, because I'm quite a critic of uh, Jason Bloom and his films. Um, I do think that, because um, I know a lot about his background, and uh, it, it also, I don't know if you know much about that, uh, how he sort of began, but I know that he got... The uh, Paranormal Activity. He found a director who did that, and that that well, I don't think there's a lot of arguments about how much it cost. About fifteen thousand dollars, and it did 180 million at the box office. I did quite well, but when you start looking at a lot of the Paranormal Activities, they're not done very well. The last one bombed really in terms of their own success. Yeah, but you, you um, talk, it's it's like it's. I'm not saying they're all good films, but in terms of serving. It's, there's enough. I mean, Sinister's a Blumhouse film, isn't it? It is, but the second one I thought was really bad. But but se- could... sequels, I, I, I can ignore sequels till I'm blue in the face because sequels are just yeah. cash-ins. I mean, Annabelle's a terrible film, but the conjuring, is, yeah. but the conjuring is yeah, great. You know, and it's like, I understand. You, I think sorry, you actually touched on another thing which I'm working on as well. I'm working on another sort of ideas of promoting films and also looking at how we can look at look at a story rather than actually look at a feature film making look at it as a franchise straight away so you've got a story world and i think that's what harry potter was so successful was in some ways it was about a story world not a film not even even though its book really presented a story world and i think that was a real key secret well i think and star you, wars is the better example isn't it because they've managed to well, survive no, i'm survival. not saying that it could be, yeah. But what I'm saying is that it's very rarely you get now where you get, you know, why on earth would you make a film and think, well, that did well, let's do another one. It doesn't seem well, logical. Because, because, no, it, it is logical on a business sense. It's not logical on, a, on, a, on, a, on an artistic sense at all. Because, because a nobody, nobody could write a franchise. The economics of movies <laughs> don't make sense throughout a franchise. Whereas, obviously, so, Harry so, Potter so, was... I, was a book that was successful, and there was loads of books, you know. So you you had a world, you had a universe. Whereas, exactly. yeah, I, I know what you're saying. You wouldn't write a franchise straight away. What I'm saying is, you go in it with a story world. Because the way I look at how you promote a, a, a film, rather than having a movie trailer, which is either making a a bad film look good or giving you too much information. Um, if you want more people in the box office then you actually tease the audience about what the film's about, but not tell them what it is. 
um, again, it comes back to suspense and about serial filmmaking. So you actually create very short clips of the story world. So you may tell them a bit more about the characters or the story world in very short clips of 30 to 60 seconds long. And you build this over a period of months and you're building an audience already. And you're always using cliffhangers um, to actually get them actually to watch the real film itself. And that seems a far more way of doing things, again, is it helps with technology that you couldn't have done years ago. But serial story, serial filmmaking was very successful, and it's ironic, when it first started back in the early 20th century. And if we started using that more now, we'd have more successful films. But I think, but I think it's, I, I don't think, I, I mean, this is where I guess science and art have a big fight because obviously you've proved you've you've found some things out from your research which is all valid and tells us something but what it what it doesn't do is tell us what the future film that people will find the future will find interesting it tells us it tells us what works there's a great there's a great analogy which is and, and it was by uh, what's he called um, Craig Mazan the the scriptwriter who did you know things like Hangover 2 and stuff he talks about script consultants, which obviously reduce screenplays to a formula in some way, shape, or form, so they can teach the process, the, the process of filmmaking to people, so they can understand how to do it. And and in a sense, you're you're asking the demolition expert, who's knocked the building down and said this is how the building was made, to make you a new one. Whereas obviously, you'd go to an architect, so you go to someone that is a storyteller, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, I and I think audiences, the public, having worked in sort of creative industries for a good long while now, including managing a rock band and stuff, is the public don't know everything, but they hold all the cards. And so all the things that you think are a formula for success, the, or the, the, the mainstream audience will always trick you into believing you're right and prove you very wrong very quickly. So when no, I'll give that example of snakes on the plane. Yeah, yeah. That's a good example. I just said that. What I'm saying is that the scientific data and understanding viewer experience and understanding what really does scare us. I mean, the science outside the cinema. What does really make us feel scared? Because it's those things that have made us scared in the films. Yeah. It's not, you know, what I'm saying is that by understanding these mechanisms, uh, <coughs> I mean, I'm pretty confident that filmmakers will have newer science information or some sort of understanding of that, of how they construct films in the future about motions in 20 years' time, they will have that because you, you can't, again, it's like trying to stop technology of how screens are used, whether we use it on a mobile or whether we see it on a, an iPhone. What I'm trying to do now as a consultant or a film consultant is now to do what you just said, is to bring what is going to be the horror films of the future. What is what do we really need to look at? And working with really good creative people in the industry to do that. It's not just saying I've got all the answers. What I've got is something that is not just based on someone's assumption or, uh, in some ways, a, a film convention that's been developed over many years. It's actually trying to challenge some of these things in a very positive way and saying, well, yeah, this could work in this, but it doesn't work in this sort of thing. You know. You're trying to look at other ways of how also the data that I've got and the information I've got will also trigger new ideas within the filmmakers themselves. But don't, don't, but don't you think that, that we, we, as, we, we as, as much as that technology can, can, can 
can help understand stuff. We as we as complex human beings, we also develop at a rapid rate too. So aren't we always one step behind? That's a very good point. I mean, like like I said, I'm I'm certainly not a critic of filmmakers or directors and what they do. Yeah. I think it's more of a case that I've got now more some information that can make things better or oh, that's a wrong word that is better. It's not a very good word to use anyway. But <laughs> something really, you know, uh, create a more immersive experience of films, make the viewer really engage in the story world where you've got some sort of thing rather than someone working just purely from a creative perspective, thinking this is going to work. Because when you go to a filmmaker and say, well, why did that work? It's sometimes very difficult for them to really explain exactly what point did work in there. They may say, "Well, but that, but that isn't that isn't that." I mean, that that to me is part is part of it, you know. And there's there's a reason why some people are more successful than others, you know. That the fact that they instinctively understand what they're doing, they don't have to. I mean, I've, again, I've interviewed filmmakers, I've interviewed fine artists, I've interviewed musicians, and one of the hardest things that they get to quantify when you ask them is the how the hell, you know, it's like, it's like I, I just did. I mean, I remember Bob Dylan talking about, somebody said, how could I be as good a songwriter as you, Bob? And he said, well, you'd have to read every book I've read in the same order I've read it. You'd have to have all the conversations I've had, you'd, you know, and so on and so forth. So in a way, the person that might be inspired to do something creatively is coming from a kind of want to tell, not necessarily an understanding of what works for an audience, if that makes sense. No, I know that, but from a commercial perspective, um, if the industry wants to make money from films, they need to have that understanding of the film, of viewer experience, because it is more commercial. If you're an artist, you're doing art installation. I've done them myself, mm. interactive uh, art installations with digital media, uh, and you're doing it for a different experience altogether. But if you're actually your boss, you know, well, your company needs to make money, and if they're investing so much, they want to get something back. They're looking for high returns, and they are doing that. I mean, the film industry is very competitive. You've got China now is going to overtake America by 2020 as the biggest market share in films. I mean, they grew 38% last year. They know that's happening. But the point is that I know Hollywood's going through a bit of a I know that. I was in LA last year, and I know that from what I've heard is that there's a lot of challenging situations happening there with films because they're putting a lot of money into big budget films and they're not really making the money back. And I think, you know, there's so much money doesn't need to be spent. That's what I'm saying. You're yeah, well, I, I suppose, but a lot of the big money that's being spent is, is on films that, you know, have you read. Um, Janet Waskow's book, How Hollywood Works. You don't know. Well, essentially, it's a, it's a fairly Marxist text, but she basically looks at the the sort of extended economics of making a movie, and it's, it's a few years old, but actually, it applies now as it did then because you've got the Avengers. Say, is a Marvel franchise movie. The Avengers yeah. takes money at the box office, but ostensibly. The Avengers movie is a months and months long advertising of the Marvel brand. So you will buy Marvel t-shirts, Marvel toys, Marvel this, Marvel that. So the film itself isn't necessarily about a profit and loss. I mean, obviously you want to make a profit, don't get me wrong, because um, you've paid for a license to have the Marvel. But the Marvel license extends so much further. Whereas 
if you and I co-write a horror film about a guy running wild in East London, we're not going to look at it, a business model that says, and we get lunch boxes and we get T-shirts and so on and so forth until we've got about four films in a franchise, and then you've got your Jason dolls and your your your, your, your whatevers, and yeah, so, I know, I know and they and and but those aren't those are not competing on the same level. You know, the chances of my dad having a Marvel product are so much more so much more likely than my dad having a a Hellraiser or a Friday the Thirteenth licensed product. Just, do you know what I mean? It's like the 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 the, the economics of Hollywood. Have tried to become so risk averse that the film is secondary to the profit, but primary to the marketing. If that makes sense, and that's no, I, I, and Janet Wasco argues this really right. well. No, no, I think what you've said there is very right, but I think there are things like I mean, if we look at horror, uh, there was um, I mean, going back, I mean, I suppose um, there was a horror film. Um, uh, what was it called? Crimson something. It was a, a, a Crimson Peak. The Del Toro. Cost fifty-five million to make, and it bombed. I mean, it didn't make more than ten or twelve, fifteen million, I think, at the most. And you, I mean, we talked about Blumhouse Productions. I mean, it's a good example of Blair Witch Project. They rebooted, and to their astonishment, again, they, you know, he, he revisited this from his back history because his history was that. He missed out on the first Blair Witch Project uh, when he was at Weinstein um, Film Company. And that didn't go down well with the company, but eventually he set up on his own. But I think he was trying to revisit old times and thinking, well, we can bring it back. But it only did about 13 million at the box office. And the first one did 242. So it lost something. So when you look at, that's what I'm just saying about, that I still see that, Blue Mouse had had quite a bit of success with lots of, I'm not saying a lot of their films, but they've also had some real disappointments. And, you know, okay, they did spend only five million or whatever it was to make that film, so you but could don't, tell what they... I mean, what you're describing, though, is, is film ad nauseum. You know, studios have had hits and misses, and having dealt with major record labels, they have hits and misses. And ostensibly... The, the misses are as important part of the track record because they, they, they have their own lessons learned and they, you know, but the, but the hits <laughs> after hit is the thing, is, you know, it's sort of, for, for every, I don't know, let me think, for every, for every Crimson Peak there is Sinister, you know, and Sinister come from nowhere in a way, you know, the, the writer of it was Robert Cargill and Scott Derrickson was on the up but he wasn't oh, no, well known. Yeah. And yeah, so, and then you've got them two now just did Doctor Strange. So, you know, there was there there was two good filmmakers working together on a product. Now, admittedly, they didn't have to. So before before the public forgotten what Sinister was, they had to throw out a sequel, which clearly was never going to be as good. If it could have been. Well, it could have been, That's but but I don't think for, I don't think understanding what suspense is would have made it. Because obviously, ultimately, what 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 made it bad. Was the story that it was because it was it was no, where, well there are lots of reasons why stories like films fail it can be acting it can be the story of course yeah, yeah but but, but the, I, first, I the first one had a had a real mystery to it before you even set foot on in the cinema and it had no provenance whereas once it's got provenance a bit like Halloween four or Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven 
you, you, you're not going yeah, to you're not going to make it better than what the first one achieved because well I, I think I think you can it and Saw is one I think that really bucks the trend in that sense because I thought the way that Saw was written was like it was written as um, and they, they did intend to do this to write those that many films and when we talked about a franchise although they I mean the way Saw came about as you know is through an uh, an eight minute clip that was yeah, seen yeah 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 that. but basically. When you start looking at all those, because I watched all of them, and you start to find insignificant things in the earlier films that are relevant to the later ones, and the way the later ones actually highlight various things from the, the beginning of the story. But, I'd, but so, I'd, argue, I'd argue, so I'm blue in the face, they never planned that. They, are, they might well have expanded on it. I mean, Insidious is a better example, whereby they actually made a sequel that's so intelligent that, that, that it feels like it, it actually was made with the first one in mind and in fact it's all made up you know it never there was never a vision that there'd be a sequel but the success of Insidious meant they that the, the market wanted one and they actually made a really they went they did exactly what you're talking about is they they went into what was the story world and made an interesting sequel whereas Saw so, so just became a load of puzzles I mean it well, it's actually, it, I think what you hit the nail on here is that I mean there is a big thing about story but at the end of the day, suspense is uh, one of the key ways that we engage the audience. So if we don't get that right as well, it doesn't really matter what you've got in the story, it isn't going to work. So you have to have those that have got to, you've got to have those mechanisms that really work really well. Mm. And I think horror's lost. It's really funny. I watched a little bit of um, the Scarecrow movie of 1981, which looks really awful when you look at it. But I'll tell you what, you look at it, you think, it's, it's got stuff that horror films haven't got today. It's got this weight, and you don't even see the scarecrow at the end in a supernatural context, the very last five seconds. And mm. it has quite a big impact on you. Even though I'm not saying, the story, you know, look at it now, yeah, it's an old film and all the rest of it. But I thought that, no, that's something that you, you, know, you didn't really have any scare, messy scare features in there. They built up the tension, they built up. Elements. I'm not saying suspense was great in it or anything, but it had something that was different, a different quality than what you have now, where it has to be something that's quite scary. But I think the suspense thing is quite important for the viewer engagement. Oh, no, no, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. You know, but I agree with you. I mean, where I think my techniques would also help is that there'd be less reshooting of films, unless yeah, yeah. there's something down to acting. Um, the story should be right straight away. They should, that's where all the time should be spent. Really, is around the script. The so what you're plays. what you're talking about really is is that in a, in a, in a, in a in a world where we've got the story right, the information yeah. that you've got to hand and can help help shape in the making of a movie is to say that scene that's about how terrified the hero is. This is the best way to show that. Or this is where, if you go down this road, you're going to weaken certain elements of what you believe is the suspense of that scene. Is that what you, is that basically what you've... That, that is, and also, also what I've been asked to do is actually link those short clips to the main film as well to actually indicate where there are other aspects that haven't been shown to the viewer. You can actually also see, not without their experience, but you can actually see and put it into context of why um, those story structures might work with... Certain other remember you mentioned earlier about showing the gun and mm. people think you know this is again how we understand story it's like yeah. the viewer has to make the story themselves in their own imagination 
um, I could look at David Baldwell's example. Uh, I'm not going to use some of the terms he uses that are in Russia, but basically you've got the plot and then you've got the story. And they're two different things. So this plot is what we see on the screen and we start, our brain will start to see one thing and another thing and then we start to make predictions about what it is. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, maybe the protagonist and that's where And that's where reversal expectations is in the magic, exactly. isn't it? Because the, you, as long as yeah. you can go jazz hands, jazz hands, and then hit them in the gut while they're looking at the jazz hand, you, you've, exactly. you've done good, you've done good story. Now, I am, we have, we have gone into new territory for time for this podcast, so... Sorry about that, sorry. Hey, no, no, it's great. No, I've really enjoyed the conversation, so don't worry about it. It's not a problem. And I would love to have you on in the future to, to, to talk some more. And maybe maybe what we could do is is look at a British horror film together or something like that. Um, yeah, and discuss, and discuss no, some, some of the things. Um, I, might but, even have, I might even have some things where I can give a little bit more of what things I've done within the scripts or screenplays or shooting scripts and that's sort of no of course no that's what I was going to say I think I think we should we should this is like a starter for 10 and it's took us this while just to get into the to where you know a starting point really so yeah no I'd love to I'd love to have you back on talking again how if, if people wanted to get in touch with you is there a way obvious way is there a website is there a like social media yeah. or anything yeah they, they can get uh, my website address is um, usual www receptive cinema as one word receptivecinema.com okay. yeah um, they can get me at that um, I mean you can find me on LinkedIn and various other places anyway but, okay uh, well I'll put I'll put some if you send me some links over I'll put them in the show notes with the podcast oh thanks that's great Liz. I, know, I that really makes, appreciate that makes that. life easy for people but look oh, it's but been also what I can do if you want I Go can on. actually link them to an article which is on LinkedIn or on my website which gives you about a thousand words of a little bit about why suspense is important, the technology, and and also what we've discussed a bit about the study and where I'm in. No, no, send me that through. Send me that through, and then I'll put again. I'll put that in the show notes as well. That'd be fantastic. Okay. okay. Well, well, it's look, great. It's great talking. Keith, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.